I'm Barbara Bray. Welcome to my Rethinking Learning podcast, where I have conversations with inspirational educators, thought leaders, and change agents. I have someone here I've been wanting to talk to for some time because we've known each other for a long time. This is Nancy Weinstein. Nancy, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're having me. Thank you for having me today, Barbara. Oh, you're welcome. I mean, it was every time we go to a conference and I see you, we have all these big hugs and I'm just, I just love it. And I'm so glad we have time to really get to know each other even better. So I'm going to talk about you. I'm going to maybe make you blush a little bit. Is that okay? (laughs) Sure. Why not? (laughs) Why not? Yeah. Nancy is co-founder and chief executive officer of Mindprint Learning, LLC. I love your company. I can't wait till we tell everyone about it. It's just amazing. And I didn't know all of this. This is a lot about you. It's a I didn't know you had a bioengineering degree from University of Pennsylvania and an MBA from Harvard Business School. Is that all? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) That's all we need to talk about today. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you do have an extensive background in business, including you worked with Goldman Sachs, the Walt Disney Company. You did corporate strategic planning for them? I did. I've had a number of jobs. I switched jobs before it was cool to switch jobs. So that tells you a little bit about how old I am (laughs) and and a little bit about my career. Oh, no, you you just had so many. I mean, I'm not going to list them here. We might even talk about them when we actually go into the conversation. I'm still introducing you because I'm just like overwhelmed with everything. I love that you said this, and I, I, you said, told me this. I've seen it in your book, but you, you recognize the challenges parents face today, from helping with homework to navigating the ever-changing pace of education and technology. And that's kind of one of the reasons I think we're going to talk about your purpose, but I think that one of the reasons why you're doing what you're doing. I came to this business, obviously my career was not originally in education, But I started Mindprint as a result of my own experience with my own two daughters uh, when they were, let's see, I think they were in third grade and first grade, which is now a ways ago. So that was about 10 years ago or so. Wow. So we'll talk a little more about that because I always like to talk about your purpose. But I have your book. You co-authored a new book called The Empowered Student, and it's all about a guide. It's a workbook. And uh, we are going to talk about this. It is amazing. So that was a long introduction. Welcome, Nancy. (laughs) And I'm glad that everybody on the podcast can't see me blushing. (laughs) So thank you for that that beautiful introduction, Barbara. Oh, you're welcome. And I should have taken a screen capture. What do we do when I do my podcast? I always like to look at everybody and then we can giggle and laugh together. It's kind of fun. But you, you, you look so young. I don't. You say it's been a long time, but you look so young to me. <laughs> and you so, are so kind, as always. <laughs> so I always like to start with your background. You want to tell me where you, you know, where you grew up, and a little bit about yourself? Sure. So um, I grew up in New Jersey. Went to college in Philadelphia at University of Pennsylvania, as you suggested. Um, the sort of interesting fact, at least things, something that people tend to find interesting is that 
Um, I started dating my husband my freshman year in college. Uh, we went to the same high school. We did not date in high school. And he is, you said I was a co-founder of MindPrint Learning. He is also my co-founder of MindPrint Learning. Um, and I and also the co-founder of my two children. So there we go. Oh. I love that. <laughs> I never told I never told my husband that he was co-founder of our children. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's a good one. Yeah. And so um, have you always lived in Pennsylvania? Well, you live in New Jersey now, right? I do live in New Jersey. And um, so I grew up in New Jersey, same house. My parents just sold the house that I grew up in last year. I went to college in Philadelphia, then worked on Wall Street, as you mentioned. So I worked in New York for a couple of years. And then I'd always wanted to live in California. Uh, I know you can appreciate that, Barbara. So I took a job at Disney in their corporate strategic planning group out in Burbank, California. And I lived in beautiful Santa Monica, California, and then started working on their internet businesses. And from there started doing more entrepreneurial type things. So I did that. And then my whole family was back east, so I said I need to come back. Went to business school up in Boston, and then my husband and I now came back to New Jersey, which we never really planned on doing, but we are now in uh, in Hopewell, New Jersey, which is right outside of Princeton. So when you grew up, what you know? Just can you tell me a little bit about what it was like for you in school as a student? I hope this doesn't sound like I'm bragging, but I was a good student. Like I was, like I was sort of followed the line, um, was able to do things. But honestly, I also, even though I understood things, I was probably more stressed than I should have been um, and stressed a lot. And in hindsight, what I know now, now working on MindPrint is because, you know, I, I had good, you know, ability to reason, but I didn't have very good memory, um, which I still don't. And so studying always took me longer than it felt like it should. And I always felt like I understand this, but if I don't study more and more and more, I'm going to forget on the test. And so I would overstudy and it was stressful. And when I look back, it was so stressful and not, and it, it just didn't need to be that way. But I was a good student, which is why I was able to go into engineering. But the interesting thing um, was the reason I became an engineer. I always thought I'd go to medical school. And the reason that I became an engineer was because you didn't need to memorize anything in engineering. Every test was open book, open note. But if I wanted to do anything pre-med, I had to remember everything. I would have had, right? That was before the, I want to say it was before the internet, but that was certainly before we all had devices available to us to look things up. So you had to memorize everything. So in engineering school now, can people look things up? <laughs> they always could because it was always about problem solving. So it was oh. like, if you want to look up the formula, you want to look up, you know, Avogadro's number, you can go and look it up. The point is, is can you solve the problem? And that's why I went into engineering because I could look everything up. Wow. Why can't we make school like that? I mean, really, if we, if everything's at our fingertips, it's really what we do with that information. It's not just regurgitating, you know, that what people are asking us to remember, you know. It's so that becomes a really interesting conversation because you might be surprised to my, that my answer is that we still need students to memorize information. 
we just don't need to memorize, have them memorize as much and we don't need it to be stressful. And the way we approach math facts is obviously still not good in most cases, but students need a certain amount of foundational knowledge at their fingertips to work efficiently, right? So we can't have students go into algebra and expect them to be able to solve problems efficiently and easily if they still don't know what eight times seven is. And so there is a good reason for us to have students memorize, but we should be more selective as a nation in what we're asking them to memorize versus what we're asking them to understand. Oh, I definitely agree. I just think there's so much information. And if you're not going on Jeopardy, <laughs> I mean, there's so much trivia out there that we, it, it's our brains can only hold so much. And that is absolutely true. You're, you're a thousand, and, and it's, what do we need to know? What's important for this subject matter? And you need to know a lot in your area of expertise, but you know, if you're not going to be a history major and be writing about that, maybe you don't need to know the exact year of whichever revolution, right? You don't need to know the, the specific dates. There's more we can do around that by removing the stress around memorization and making it more about critical thinking and learning. Absolutely. Yeah, you, know, you mentioned history because I, I was in social studies and when I think about what we had the kids learn was that they were the dates, the names of specific battles and names of certain things that they could already look up, but they didn't understand the why. Why did they, why did they have these wars? Why were people fighting? Why did we have people travel and immigrate and all those things that have been, would have been great conversations and ways to have them go deeper? I totally agree with you, Barbara. <laughs> and I say we should just let history class be current events and let them discuss the current event in the context of similar events in history. That's right. And that would be every student would be interested and engaged and would remember because it's that's more relevant. It's yes. more relevant. And retention is all about for students like me who don't have a great memory, retention is, is a lot about how we make those connections to things that we know so that we can make it stick. And so if we tie what's going on today in the world, something that's relevant to them, to this is similar to an event that happened 40 years ago. Let's talk about how it's similar and how it's different. I think students are going to be more engaged and I think they're going to remember more. And to your point, it's going to have so much more relevance to what they're doing. Well, that's, I, I've talked to a lot of kids and worked with uh, middle schools. And I mean, when I taught ancient civilizations, I, it was like, you know, their eyes would roll. And <laughs> I remember that. I was one of those students whose eyes rolled. <laughs> yeah. How do you make it? I mean, my main thing was I had to make it personal. I had to find a way to um, make them feel like, well, they could, they can put themselves in that time. And then they, you know, but now it's just something's happened with the subjects being, you know, subject specific and they're not really uh, looking at strategies to make it relevant. But I think teachers really want that. Can you tell me, you know, since you were an engineer, how did you get in? What was the purpose? I mean, how did you get into education? 
So I came to education as a parent. I had been working in the pharmaceutical industry. I had two daughters. They are um, two years, two weeks, two days apart, which I love. I love that. Good planning. And I'll step back and say that my husband and I are both the same type of critical thinkers, and we both analyze problems similarly. It's just naturally how we approach problems. And I had these two daughters who not only didn't think and approach problems the same way we did, even at a very young age, it was very clear, and so different from each other. And so it was clearly, to me, not a nurture issue. It was a nature issue. And the importance of understanding their nature and how I was possibly going to support them, because I didn't understand them, right? Like the things that, like I, I was the kid that loved to do math puzzles I could put a math puzzle in front of my, my girls and they would look the other direction. There was just no interest. Their, their interests were just so different. And then we got into the whole two girls. I was an engineer, so clearly I liked math. And I had two girls who didn't love math. And I was intent on what can we do differently? Why don't my girls love math? And why isn't the school helping solve that problem? And so we started to explore and I started to learn and read about the brain. I was just naturally interested in hindsight. I probably should have been a psychologist, but now I play one sometimes. Uh, But to me, it was just like I needed to understand how they learned so that I could support them and understand how they could possibly be so different from each other and from myself and my husband, because genetically it kind of didn't make sense, right? Like what we know about genetics. And so I started reading and learning and sort of training and learned about these psychoeducational evaluations and these tests that could basically tell you how a student learned, what their relative strengths were, where it might take them more time. So for me, my memory would have been weaker, but maybe my reasoning skills would have been stronger. And when I started reading about them and learning about them, one of the things I discovered was is that they were really expensive, right? So the only way you could get one of these tests was you could go to visit a child psychologist, right? As a parent like myself who wanted to just go and support their child, you could go and and it was very expensive. It was very time consuming. Like in some markets, like where you are up in Northern California, Barbara, I hear the going rate is like over $7,000 for this set of tests. It's crazy, right? It depends on the market, different parts of the country. Obviously it's different, but what was consistent is that across the board, you needed to be sitting with a trained psychologist and it would take about five to 10 hours of a student and a family's time to do that. And, you, you know, it was, it was expensive. It was time consuming. Most of the time the student would have to leave school. And I was like, this is crazy. Like in the internet age with technology, this is the only way we can do this to find out how our kids learn and how the best way to teach them is. And so I did more research and I said, we can do this. We can do this for every student and it doesn't need to be that expensive. 
and it doesn't need to be that time consuming. And um, I found this amazing team at University of Pennsylvania's um, Brain Behavior Lab, coincidentally my alma mater, and nearby to my home. And they were doing, they had developed this test that could do all this. And they were actually like really kind of cool. They were working with NASA and doing the same kind of testing with the, the astronauts. So the, um, the test that they have, the same, the astronauts, the twin brothers that went up, one went into space and one didn't, and they were measuring. The Kelly. Yes. Thank you. Kelly. Uh, yeah. And so they were working with NASA so that they were doing those measurements for NASA. And we're now using that same test to understand how students learn. We know that everybody learns differently. Even those twin brothers had uh, differences. They were both astronauts, but, but differences. And we know that every student has relative strengths and relative needs in how they learn. And like for myself, if I had known that, hey, it's okay, your reasoning skills are good, but your memory's not as good, and we're going to teach you strategies so that you can memorize more easily, geez, Barbara, I might have become a doctor, I might have become a psychologist, we might not be here today, right? <laughs> but Well, that, that was your journey. <laughs> right, that was, every, and everybody has a journey, but imagine yeah. how much less stressful school would have been for me. Imagine how much more, when I think back, how much more I would have enjoyed school. And we can do that for every kid. So with my own two daughters, now I understand what's easier for them, what is naturally harder. I don't say to them, you're not trying, you don't want to do this. Sometimes they're not trying. And I do say you're not trying, but, <laughs> but just because something that would have come easily to me doesn't come easily to them. I understand how they learn and the best way to support that when they're doing their homework. So, um, I'm just going to kind of go over some things because, you know, I've done a little bit about personalized learning, just a little. Just a little. And, <laughs> and um, one of the things that I see is the idea of everyone being unique and have variable strengths and differences, and especially with the, the strengths and the needs. Now, uh, one of the people, you know, I, I read, and you've read it too, is The End of Average from Dr. Todd Rose. Correct, yes. And, and uh, he has a new he has a new book called Dark Horse, and hopefully I get to talk to him about that because it's all about each of us has unique qualities, and sometimes people don't believe in us. So with um, just bringing up me is I was told in fit, uh, first grade that I was a very poor reader, and they put me in a track with low readers, and I was reading. Mm -hmm. I didn't get it, but I didn't like the books they gave me or something. I don't know what was happening, but there was no test at that time that could really evaluate me in the way that you're talking about. So I was put in a track and that track followed me because it, what happens is you're labeled. So we have kids, I've worked in Oakland Unified School District and we've had kids that were labeled behavior problems or other issues and no one tested them that way to really help them. Barbara, you're so right. I can't tell you how many students we see that are in remedial programs that actually test as gifted. 
if anybody knew. Now, they might have another, you know, relative difficulty. Like a lot of cases, it's a difficulty paying attention. So it looks like they're not listening or they don't understand it when they just need support in one area. And if we support them and we know that, it's, it opens a world. They need to be understood. What I would say almost universally, the feedback we get from students when they see their learner profile is, I feel understood. I have, this is me. Somebody understands me. Nobody understood me before. And that everybody needs to be understood, right? At, a most, at the most fundamental level, that's humanity, right? We need to be understood. And we use that understanding to create a level of self-awareness. And when students are self-aware, then they can really learn. Then they're prepared. Then we get to, and I'm jumping ahead to our book, but we can't expect students to self-regulate their learning and be in control of their learning if they don't know who they are and they don't have that self-awareness. Because young Barbara, if you ask her about self-awareness, she would have said, I'm not a good reader. And that's not who young Barbara was. Like we need to give students some objective, good data on who they are, where their strengths are, and understand that everybody has an area where they're not as strong. I was going to say this, not only mind print, I'm thinking of your program where you have this learner profile that, and the way that you do the assessment that I, um, I saw through it how it really opened my eyes on, hey, I have a say in, in, in what you're asking me. It, it was different. And also with parents, um, when you mentioned um, how you didn't understand with your own children, I'm thinking of my son. He was labeled gifted in music, but he had a learning disability. And they don't label you too. <laughs> Labels. <laughs> I had to go outside of the system to get him help. And the problem is, is, and he also is a perfectionist, like I am too. And being a perfectionist is can cause a lot of stress also. Yes. So there's all these things that can impact you and you're not just one thing. No, you're well, not. Of- <laughs> you are not. And, and Barbara, so many parents have that story, right? So, you know, my daughter, one of my two daughters, when we were when I was going through this, she was, you know, her teacher said, she's, you know, she seems to be a gifted writer, but it's taking her so much longer than everybody else to write. What's going on, right? She's a pretty talented writer. She, you know, now she's a little bit more grown up. She's in high school, but everybody has that. We've tested thousands and thousands of students. And let me tell you, Barbara, nobody's strong in every skill. Nobody, the brain just doesn't work that way. We all have relative strengths. Um, I don't know if you know Dr. Paul Yellen at NYU. I've heard of him, but I don't know. He's an MD at NYU, um, and he does a lot of these types of evaluations. He's also on the the board of directors of, of CAST, which is how I know him, and CAST published our book. But he uses this wonderful analogy of a tennis player. And the reason I love it, one, is because I was a tennis player. But two, I love it because we know that tennis is a lifelong sport. And with enough practice, anybody can really be good at tennis. Not professional, but you can be good at tennis, right? But 
everybody has a strongest skill in tennis, like a strong shot. That's like their go-to shot. And everybody who plays tennis knows that they have their weaker shot, even the professionals, right? And to be a successful tennis player, it's knowing how and when to use your strongest shot and how to get enough practice for your weaker shots and then how to compensate to make sure that your opponent doesn't pick on your weakest shots. And that's kind of like what a learner is, right? We all have our strongest skills. There's oh, we all have something that we're better in and then we all have we all have something we're not as good in and how do we make sure that we use our strengths to help us learn and succeed and when you know something focuses a little bit more on where we're not as strong, how do we compensate and use our strengths to help us succeed? I love that analogy. Thank you Dr. Paul Yellen. That sounds wonderful. I'm going to have to definitely learn more about that (laughs) because uh, that story is so true. And a lot of us don't, well, I'm just going to say as teachers, we've been taught to teach the same thing to everyone. And the problem is, is now we have to figure out ways that we can really, you know, support them because they're all different. They're all unique. Okay. So Now we're starting to get down and dirty about your book and your company, which is Mindprint Learning LLC. And and one of the things I love about, um, first about Mindprint is that, you know, I was doing learner profiles until you showed me yours, I got it, that I didn't have the, uh, it's like it didn't go deep enough, the ones that I was doing. And what I see that you're doing now, and you're allowing students to be able to share so many facets of their life, their skills, their dispositions, everything, it it shows them who they are, just like you were mentioning. And the other thing I, I love about it is that they get their own personalized toolbox. Yes. Yes. Because we know how important learner choice is. And we know, we know if we want students to be motivated, they have to be interested and engaged. And so... And thank you for your kind words about our learner profile. We really, it's so important that when we think about the whole student, that we're not just evaluating them on their academics, like, which is important, right? That's part of it. But, and their, their interest in personality traits, but also how they learn best and what's the best way for them to be successful and for them to understand how they, how they can succeed. And looking at it, because I really feel social-emotional learning is such a big part in the whole child, and you've really pulled that together. And so you're right now, knowing that that came from NASA, I mean, I <laughs> <laughs> and the Kelly brothers, that's pretty cool. Um, it, it'll be really interesting to get this out so people can see it and, and really use it in the schools, because what I loved um, when you showed it to me is not only do you get a dashboard of each child, you can see where where their strengths are, where they need some more support, and where they are really having problems. Oh, you have to watch them. You know, I it, it comes up with color coding, so you can really see where they are. And then when you have it as a class, you can see where in the class you could actually group kids. Am I right? You are that, so right, and we want to be careful because. Our groupings are based on how students learn, not what they know. So we're not taking, again, to your point about reading Barbara and saying, 
you know, picking on baby Barbara or young Barbara. And I apologize <laughs> to young Barbara. But that's okay. But in our groupings, young Barbara probably wouldn't have been in that slow reader group, right? Yeah. Because we would have yeah. known this is young Barbara is is capable and then this is what we need to do to interest young Barbara. And so when we group students by how they learn, not what they know, then everybody's learning in a way that's best suited to them. And we can have students that might know a little bit more than other students, but we peer teaching is without, you know, unquestionably, if you look at John Hattie's work, it's one of the best and most effective strategies if done right. And if done right means grouping students that learn the same way in the same group so that the one that might be ahead can say to the other one, hey, this is what worked for me. I think it will work for you too. As opposed to if I were in a group picking on young Nancy, uh, if I were in a group and someone had put me with a kid with great memory and they said, oh, you just memorize it, I would have wanted to go in a corner and cry because I can't just do that. Even if that, uh, right? And so when we yes. put kids together that, that learn similarly and have the same relative strengths, they teach each other. And that makes the teacher's uh, job a little bit easier too, which is also nice. Well, and that's the whole thing about if you do it right, it's competency-based, it's personalized, but you're also collaborating and you have cooperation and everyone is a teacher, everyone's a learner. Everybody's helping each other. And I love that you have these tools and resources. So I got your book. I'm sitting here looking through saying, this is a perfect compliment for what you're doing. It's I and if people haven't seen mind print and they get your book, they they'll they'll say, well, you know, I really want to do this, but it would really be nice to have a lot of this together with the assessment online. I mean, I see all of it. Why you did this. So your book, you wrote it with um, with Mary Vicky Algieri. And thank you for mentioning that, because I would be completely remiss without like a very loud, long shout out. To Mary Vicky. She's incredible. She is my partner in crime and everything that I do on mind print. <laughs> She's amazing. And, you know, we, we share credit for the book. So please, thank you. Oh, well, it's, it's the empowered student, a guide to self-regulated learning. And I see how you both work together. I, I just from looking through the book and talking to you and a lot of people don't know what self-regulated learning is. So you just want to give a little quick summary of what that is? I'll try my best. So self-regulated learning is the idea where the student understands what he or she needs to succeed and takes control of his learning to be successful. At least that's our definition of self-regulated learning. Um, and we view it as a two-part process. I think I was saying earlier, so one, you need to be self-aware and have self-awareness that's grounded in reality because we know that not every teenager is has a purely objective view of themselves and sees themselves for who they really are. Um, and so we want that to be grounded in reality about their strengths and their needs, but self-awareness, whether it's academic, um, cognitive, or social-emotional. And then once they know that, okay, how am I going to succeed? Back to the metaphor of the tennis player, what strategies am I going to use to succeed? Because they work best for me, even if they don't work best for my partner. So 
Vicki and I use really different strategies at times when we work together, but we get to the right place, right? And that's how we always have to think about it. The way you have your introduction, it's almost like it, it gives me a whole guide because you use the universal design for learning strategies and, and principles and guidelines. And so you put in the guidelines, each one of the guidelines, and then you have a lesson, a mind print lesson, and then you have mind print activities that go with those lessons. And there's so many of them that they're not based on academics. They're based on the the guidelines, which are the self-regulation, executive function, and um, all the, the strategies we need to become self-regulated. Thank you for recognizing that. And um, Barbara, do you remember the choose your own adventure books from your... Uh, oh, yeah. Right? I love those. So we kind of- and I could read them. <laughs> That's good too. We, uh, but Mary and Vicky and I always thought about it like that, which is it's a choose your own adventure. So we recommend starting with some of the growth mindset work because we need know we need students to feel self confident and know that their brain can grow and change, and so that they know that they can be successful. But if you wanted to work with um, if you wanted to start with knowing your strengths around academic skills, that's okay too. And then we have multiple activities within each of those chapters because we know some classrooms have 10 minutes to spend on a new activity and some have a whole day. And so pick what works for you. You know your students' best teachers. We want to give you lots of options, knowing your students, knowing your time constraints. Um, and what your goals are. And you know what I like is they're not by grade level. Nope. They're, I love it. <laughs> it's, I mean, you you have one I just turned to. is everyone makes mistakes and you start with selecting a quote and you have a list of quotes. That could be any reader, any age. Any reader, any yeah. age, any interest, right? So some yeah. will choose a musician yeah. because they're musical like your son and some will choose a sport and... Yeah. yeah, I just, I could go on and on. <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of that much time. But Nancy, what I love is that you have everything we've been talking about, all the years I've known you, we've been talking about these these ideas and you've been pulling them together and really refining them. And MindPrint is really expanded now with, I think you said 10,000 students. And I mean, it's amazing. And now with the book, I love CAST, by the way. So do I. I did work with CAST. It's the Center for Accessible Special Technology. I got to get it right. I worked with them. They probably don't even know that. I worked with them in Berkeley in the 80s, long, 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 long time ago. (laughs) And so when I started doing work on universal design for learning, for personalized learning, and learned the, the principles, I said, this is it. There's so much so much that they offer to help people understand who they are. It's like you're the perfect fit. We, we were lucky to to partner up with them. So they're the publisher of our book. And when we thought about creating MindPrint, we actually took out the UDL standards. And everything we did was according to the UDL standards, even though we didn't know the team at CAST. And for us to you know, fast forward a couple of years, I think it was four years and have cast publish our book. 
it was it was amazing. Well, they don't have one like this, and I haven't seen one like this. I wanted to do one like this, but I can't do one like this. You <laughs> had to do it. <laughs> so, um, I, I, I mean, I would talk to you all day, Nancy. I, I really just love this. But I, I think we're just going to have to get you back and do some more talks and go deeper around some of these issues because uh, we could. We could go very deep around all the all the wonderful work and and resources that you have well anytime barbara you know i'd love to come back and always come back and talk to you oh thank you so much this has been wonderful thank you barbara (laughs) thank you for listening to the rethinking learning podcast and my conversation with nancy weinstein look for a complimentary blog post about nancy mind print learning and We also put in a lot of resources and links for you. Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave a review on iTunes. Tweet out the post with the hashtag Rethink underscore learning. Now, you can also subscribe to my website, BarbaraBray.net, and that way you receive announcements and updates so you don't miss any of the conversations.